This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Among the most pivotal moments of a very difficult year were the protests that followed the recorded death of George Floyd while in the custody of Minneapolis police. Concerned citizens from around the Commonwealth organized to express outrage at what they believed to be a broad-based problem in how police forces, including those of Boston and the region, treat non-white citizens in the course of law enforcement. Massachusetts community leaders and activists harnessed the outrage and attention Mr. Floyd's death generated to insist legislators produce an emergency law to address injustices in law enforcement. The product of this legislation is Bill S-2963, an act relative to justice, equity, and accountability in law enforcement in the Commonwealth. A 126-page document negotiated and passed by the legislature, amended by the governor, and now waiting to be reconsidered on Beacon Hill. To discuss the merits and questions on the proposed legislation, is my guest today, former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis. Ed Davis has been in law enforcement for 35 years, from police officer in his hometown of Lowell to serving as the Boston Police Commissioner from December 2006 until October 2013. Commissioner Davis has worked internationally on police issues in Singapore, London, Northern Ireland, Jordan, and Israel. Commissioner Davis served on the Police Executive Research Forum's Board of Directors and was a founding member and first president of the Massachusetts Major City Chiefs Association. Mr. Davis is now president and CEO of the Edward Davis Company, a business strategy and security services firm. When I return, I will discuss the emergency law enforcement bill with former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis. Okay, welcome back to Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by Commissioner Ed Davis. Welcome to the show, Ed. Good afternoon, Joe. Thank you. All right. Now, 2020, uh, in what I would uh, consider to be perhaps a perfect storm for law enforcement, uh, at the peak of the lockdown, we had, of course, the video of George Floyd dying while in the custody of police. Uh, It seemed to set off a powder keg of anger. Uh, as a person who's seen successful law enforcement from every level in your in your career, did the reactions that followed George Floyd's death surprise you? Not really. Um, I, I was I was so um, struck by the uh, inhumanity of of that incident uh, that I fully expected that there would be a backlash. Um, I didn't expect it to go nationwide like it did. Uh, so. The, the backlash was was larger and more comprehensive than I expected. But um, uh, w- what we saw in the video was just terrible and un- un- uh, unacceptable. And we did a show here on pod- the podcast uh, on Hubwonk shortly after uh, the unrest. And we, we talked a lot about uh, police accountability. Uh, specifically, we addressed the issue that perhaps um, the popular perception is that police unions improperly shield bad cops from discipline. Um, you've been in the uh, uh, law enforcement for nearly four decades. Uh, what obstacles did you see while serving as the Boston Police Commissioners to holding either bad police officers accountable or bad police actions accountable? 
Well, Joe, I, I was a police uh, commissioner or a chief here in Massachusetts for over 20 years, and, and I did a lot of work nationally uh, for the Justice Department as well. So I, I, I've seen a lot of things happen um, that, that should be changed. And so even before uh, this move to pass legislation, I was a proponent of things like a post in Massachusetts or a police officer standard and training. Um, and, and so there have been instances, although not many, but there have been instances where officers um, were, were put back on the job by through civil service appeals. Um, and, and there were some structural issues that make it difficult to hold some officers accountable. But the large majority of officers are out there doing the best job that they can. And they're doing a very difficult job, a dangerous job that needs the support of the community. So I think that there's a propensity right now to look at all police as as one. And that's not fair um, to 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 the good work that's being done. So have the other problems? Yes, there are. Yes, they are. Um, Can they be resolved? They certainly can. And the good news is that we have everybody's attention right now. So it might be a good time to look at some of the, the issues here, but not to go too far. Now, you mentioned a, uh, an important point that I wanted to bring up in both the current bill uh, in consideration and the governor's amended version. Uh, there is a discussion about what you mentioned, a post commission uh, that stands for police officer standards and training. Right. Uh, you uh, mentioned that is perhaps useful. Effectively, what we're doing in that case is licensing police and, of course, the threat of revoking those licenses for police. Uh, is that what you consider to be an, an effective ways of, of holding bad actors accountable? I, I do. Uh, the the post process is um, being conducted in the majority of states in the nation right now. And um, I think it's important to have an outside review of, of conduct uh, of, of some offices like Derek Chauvin, who had multiple complaints over and over again, but was able to use a system to stay on the job. I, I think that, uh, you know, bringing sunlight into that process is, is a good idea because it has to be done properly and with, with uh, experienced people. And so um, th- that I, I think this is a good moment for us to uh, support positive change, uh, but it has to be done right. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we're talking about matters of degree. Um, in the extreme, um, much has been made about the fact that police officers enjoy what's called qualified immunity, or essentially they're, they're immune from criminal or legal responsibility unless unless they do something that violates clearly established law. Do you think those kinds of protections uh, do more harm than good? No, I, I think that a police officer's job, um, as I mentioned before, society is asking that officer to intervene in the most violent uh, messy, complicated issues that affect society. You know, when you uh, see something happening that's that's horrible, you dial nine one one, and you expect an officer to come to the scene and use their uh, expertise, their training, and the tools that they have to mitigate the damage that's occurring right there. And, and I mean, I could run down a list of things that I've seen personally that would that would um, make it clear that that is a very difficult proposition on on the uh, on the side of the officer so I think that 
you have to understand that the the job those offices are doing is to protect is to protect society. And if you put unreasonable safeguards in place uh, on the use of force on on what an officer does in the heat of the moment when when you can't you know refer to experts or or or, or back to a textbook and and literally your life and the life of others hangs in the balance. You have to give some latitude to the human factors involved involved here. And I, and I think that that's really an important perspective. It's important to keep officers, uh, to, to, to have officers adhere to a high standard of professionalism. And some of the stuff that we've seen happen has been anything but that. It's been criminal activity. But it's also important that society understand that, though, that, that if you handcuff those officers, and they decide that they don't want to put their hands on someone or they decide that it's too dangerous to risk their financial security and in, in their homes. Um, they're going to step back. And that's not a good thing for neighborhoods of color, for instance, uh, that I've spent a lot of time in as the police commissioner in Boston and Lowell. People that I met in those neighborhoods want police. They want respectful policing. And that's that's the key to this. It's not to handcuff the police. It's just to make sure that the 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 suspect, the individual who is doing something that people have called us on to, to try to affect, that they get treated respectfully. But the other side of that equation is that the police get re- treated respectfully, too. They are not perfect. There will be mistakes made. It's a human condition. Sure. Uh, you've, you've been in the, the trenches, as it were, um, and seen it firsthand uh, for many years. Um, getting into the police and, and, and considering the human aspects, a lot in the uh, current bill and the, uh, the governor's amendments, uh, talk about training and who should be in charge of that training. Uh, an important amendment that the governor made was to restore the Municipal Police Training Committee to the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security rather than to the Post Commission, which is largely a, a civilian organization. Uh, the governor even said, I do not want the, I do not accept the premise that civilians know best how to train police. Do you think in, in sort of arriving at what we both, I hope, uh, aspire to having ideal or uh, optimal police outcomes is training and who does the training uh, essential in that, in that development? It really is uh, training, especially basic training, uh, you know, the, the police academy that the offices go through. But then the the, um, the the training that occurs yearly uh, after that, that that's so important to what people do, what police officers do on the street. When you when you're managing human systems, you have to train it up, and then you have to supervise it. And those are the two most important things that we can do as a state to make sure that is working. But you don't want to have people picking a curriculum that don't have any idea or experience in, in that field. You wouldn't do that in a medical school. You wouldn't have as much as as much as civilian input is extremely important. And and the Mass Criminal Justice Training Council should be paying attention to what the community wants and and also watching the police, uh, you know, police as warriors type of training that, that that is that may be too prevalent at this point in time. But so so there needs to be tempering of of that of that curriculum community input can be very important but i think the final call should be left with the experts 
And so I support I support Governor Baker's position on this. Um, another sticking point, um, and I, I don't know that they've arrived at a, an agreement here. Is um, and this may be something that uh, was implemented after you were commissioner, but the use of facial recognition technology uh, seems to be somewhat controversial in that the governor believes uh, it should be studied, but perhaps not not um, proscribed. Um, what is your view, if you have one, on, on the use of facial uh, recognition technology? Well, I have strong feelings about that. Um, you know, when I first started in policing, video was not uh, an issue. Uh, it, it almost never existed. Now it exists in every case that's being investigated. And it's an extremely important tool so that police can do the job that they have to do. I understand the privacy advocates' um, concern. I don't want to see a big brother type of situation developing where every move that you make is uh, is monitored by video cameras. But if a crime has occurred and there is a victim, I've spent my life oriented towards victims and making sure that they are um, satisfied in their quest for justice, but also um, making sure that they have an immediate response and a, a response that's as quick and as efficient as we can make so that there aren't more victims of these cases. And so to, to have a law put in place that stops the use of the latest technology in this area, first of all, it's an indication that they're throwing everything but the kitchen sink into this legislation, which I never think is a good idea. And second, I think that if people were to think about what they would want if their mother or their wife was victimized by a crime, uh, they, sh they should take that into consideration before they say the police can't use this technology to identify people. When we were chasing the Boston Marathon bombers, we used this technology. It was employed by the, uh, uh, by the uh, FBI. Uh, we didn't get hits in a timely uh, fashion, although we, later on they were able to pick out the suspects through the technology. But I can tell you that the community was demanding an immediate stop to the activity that these individuals were perpetrating on the citizens of the city. And I think that you have to look at this measure in terms of what would happen if you, uh, we want to get a murderer off the street. We want to get a rapist off the street. We, we should be able to do it as quickly and effectively as we can within the rights of the Constitution. And, and this outright banning of the technology goes way beyond what the Supreme Court has said is appropriate in public places. And I think that people should be concerned for their own safety uh, on this particular issue. Beyond the, the concerns of uh, privacy, uh, there are uh... It's been said that uh, the technology um, misidentifies more people of color, or in fact, female people of color. Uh, have you looked into the studies on uh, why or how it is that this technology may misidentify and, and un, you know, essentially understand why uh, those who oppose the technology may have legitimate concerns in this regard? I do. I, I've, I've spoken at the National Privacy uh, Forum. Um, and I, 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 I was involved with several companies that are engaged in, in this process. And I'll, I'll just say to you that it was true that there were problems when this technology first came out. The, algorithm, the algorithms were developed at places like MIT. 
Um, and, and the people that it was tested on were the students and, and friends of the students uh, who were mostly uh, white. And, and so they did find uh, problems in identification of people of color. That needs to be worked out. And the, the algorithms are already being amended at Google and other places that use them uh, to fix that problem. So it's not it, 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 that fact that, that there is a problem there. It should definitely be cause for concern, but not cause to throw the whole concept out. It can be resolved. It can be corrected. And then people will be safer in the communities. Beyond the issues surrounding facial recognition, uh, advocates of the bill uh, focus a great deal on the issue of race and point to uh, higher rates of arrest, prosecution, incarceration among people of color. Now, in your experience, how does a police force work to ensure fair and equal treatment to all citizens? And in that regard, what metrics would you use or have you used to measure your success in treating all citizens equally and fairly? Well, uh, the, um, the education process is extremely important. Having people confront their own biases, um, the, the, uh, the type of, uh, of training that's occurring right now in police agencies, uh, unconscious bias, uh, things that make you question uh, the, the, um, the, the experience of people of color are extremely important. You have to have empathy for the people that, that you are working with in the neighborhoods um, that, that you're policing. Um, you know, in, in, in Boston, we have more police assigned to neighborhoods of color, largely because the call volume in those neighborhoods is higher than it is in other neighborhoods. So some people look at that in a negative way. I look at it that we're trying to satisfy the demand in neighborhoods that need more protection. I, I've had conversations, Mayor Menino and I went into a house in Dorchester and met with a woman who refused to let her children go in the front yard because there was so much shooting out in the street. And those kids spent the whole summer inside the house. And Mia Menino said, this is unacceptable. I want something done about it. Now, in the past, the police response would be, let's go in and arrest a lot of people. We didn't take that tact. We just increased visibility in the neighborhood. And we, we talked about doing outreach to people. And our, our arrest numbers dropped at the same time that the crime numbers dropped in that neighborhood. So we were trying to stabilize a neighborhood so a family, a family of color could, could enjoy the civil rights that everybody else is having in, 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 the, uh, in the city. And, and I think that's an important component to this. You can look at it as if there's some kind of evil plot to put people of color in jail. But remember, when a police officer makes an arrest, it's the, the, the case is adopted by the district attorney it's brought to a clerk of courts for first review. It's brought to a judge for second review. And then ultimately, if it's a serious case, it's brought to a jury who gets to look at all of the facts and make a determination whether that person should or should not be in jail. People are short circuiting the, the reasoning on this and acting as if, oh, these cops are just out there locking everybody up. Um, are there more arrests in communities of color? Yes, there are. 
there's more cops in communities of color. So how do we protect the people in those communities, but make sure that it's respectfully done and it's done with an eye towards not using arrest and prosecution as the only tool. We expanded those tools with our safe street teams when, when, we, um, when we were working in Boston and it reduced the number of arrests and it reduced the crime rate. There are strategies that can make that happen. Well, to that point, I've actually heard you speak about uh, best practices in law enforcement and, and, and saying that uh, it's more about prevention than uh, sort of post hoc uh, enforcement. Um, you, you referenced uh, some of the techniques used with uh, Mayor Menino. Uh, is there anything that isn't in the bill that you wish would have been in that would have encouraged better policing on the streets in a, in a sense, um, in the case of your uh, Dorchester family, uh, what could have been in this bill that that might better address their needs? Well, that's a that's a great question that requires <laughs> a lot more thought than I've given it. But um, the the truth of the matter is, there are national strategies on crime reduction and developing relationships with communities that need to be followed and. That can happen through those two things that I talked about. When you're managing human systems, you train it up. So you need to have a robust training process that has community input, very, very important. And then you have to supervise it. So the idea of organizational change, cultural change in police departments is critical. The sergeant is the linchpin to what the officers are doing out there. Those sergeants need to be given the authority and the responsibility to police the officers who are working for them. And when things start to go sideways with an officer because of drug abuse, because of alcohol abuse, because of stressors, there needs to be an intervention process. Officers are dying at a rate higher than the military, I'm sorry, higher than the general public and about akin to the military uh, by suicide through their own hand. And so the stressors and the, 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 the possibility of helping someone who starts to go down the wrong road will not only help the community, but it will help the officers who are, who are being exposed to this vicious um, kind of incidents that occur that they have to see every day. Um, they, there's a way for a win-win here. It's not all adversarial. And, and I think that's why Governor Baker's suggestions in amending this bill are well taken. So uh, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So in general, you see the bill as uh, sort of assuming the police are are the problem and, and looking to uh, remedy that problem rather than seeing it as a, a human um, a system whereby the, the police need limits, but also support for the difficult work they do. I, I think that's, that's true. I think that's exactly the way I feel about it. Although that being said, there are serious problems that need to be corrected. Civil service needs to be corrected. The, 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 you know, the bureaucratic process that goes for years in holding some the small number of offices accountable is, is not only unfair to the, to the victim and the, and the officer in the system, but it's also unfair uh, to the rest of the police department that sees these things happening year after year after year and get the impression that uh, we don't have to worry about sergeants. We don't have to worry about the commissioner. We don't have to worry about the internal affairs unit. 
So now I, I want to change our, our lens a little bit from just what's going on in Boston or in the Commonwealth. You've done extensive work around the world and in other cities uh, with, with uh, law enforcement. What has, I'm going to ask you two sides of a question. What has your um, experience in the Boston community in our unique environment, how has that helped you inform others from around the world? And how has your experience uh, interacting with your counterparts from around the world informed your, the advice you give now as a, uh, as a professional in your own firm? Yeah, uh, great questions. Um, I, I've been so proud to be uh, associated with the Boston Police Department because they took a leadership role in this. Uh, Bill Bratton um, was here for a short period of time, but the bulk of the work that was done in the Boston Police Department around community policing was accomplished by Paul Evans. Uh, Paul was a mentor of mine. He uh, he, he teamed up with me on the uh, RCPI, the Regional Community Policing Institute. Uh, and we had such success that the Attorney General at the time, Janet Reno, came to the city on a number of occasions to learn from what we were doing. The numbers were dropping in Boston, they were dropping in Lowell where I was, and the, the strong connection with the community, which was extremely difficult to establish, but effective. We worked with Jack McDevitt over at Northeastern University in putting these groups together. We, we, if you open the doors up to academics, if you listen to their research, if you do the right thing, you, you, can, you can make a difference. And Boston was much better than most cities during this last round of, uh, of incidents that occurred. And I think that's due to the work that, that Paul started and, and I continued and Willie continues today in doing outreach to uh, communities of color and making sure that prevention and not arrest and prosecution is what we should concentrate on. That's what I tell police uh, leaders in other, in other countries. Um, we, we've done a lot of work in the Middle East. Um, I, I went on patrol with offices in Singapore, and I was struck by, no matter where you are in the world, how similar the police officers' jobs are. There's an accident here. There's a domestic incident here. There's a disturbance over there. That's what people work with. And no matter what system you're in, society needs police so that the, the exercise of individual freedoms by most of the people can be enjoyed not being interfered by people that would do that. So the principles uh, of community policing are both useful and valid everywhere in the world that you've seen. No question about it. Absolutely no question about it. And the more military a police organization gets, the more difficult they have in, in, in effectively policing the community. A, a, co a cop a long time ago said to me, when you're working on a murder case, the one thing you have to remember is someone knows what happened. Someone out in that community knows what happened. So the more people you know, the more people that trust you, the better capability you have as a police detective in solving these most serious crimes. And I, that's been the basis of everything I've done in policing. So we're getting close to the end of our time together. Um, so we know that many uh, legislators and folks in the executive branch on, on Beacon Hill listen to the show. Um, so assuming they're listening to this uh, podcast uh, and they're now sitting here thinking about how to reconcile the governor's amendments with the original bill. What would you like them to know when they're sitting there trying to hash out which, uh, where they're going to go, if they're going to find agreement? What would you like them to know that perhaps they haven't considered? Well, there's a lot of very good police uh, officers and, and very good police administrators in Massachusetts, and that's been the case for decades. And many of us have spent a good part of our career 
teaching police to confront their biases and to treat individuals as they should as as they present themselves don't look at someone because of the way that they're dressed or where they live or with the color of their skin and draw any conclusions from that let them present themselves and treat them the way you would want to be treated in in those cases and it's ironic that after all of these decades of us making progress in that area now people are looking at a police department as if it's just a blue wall of of I hesitate to say evil, but in some cases, people believe that. And so cut the police the same break that you want the police to cut the community. In other words, let's be fair and and level-headed about this. And let's make sure that the goal is respectful policing. It's not a gotcha. It's not trying to, you know, let people suffer on the community side or on the police side. Let's be fair and balanced about what we're doing and how we're doing it and, and make sure that the human factor is always upmost in everybody's mind. I like that message. It's a great way to finish. A, uh, I hadn't thought of it this way, but the, the communities of color expect police officers to see them as individuals uh, rather than a group. Uh, we should do the same to police officers and not generalize based on the color of their uniform. Each individual officer is, uh, deserves uh, the benefit of the doubt. Correct. I agree. Thank you, Joe. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. I hope you and yours are very healthy. Uh, We're all waiting patiently for our turn uh, at a vaccine. Uh, uh, And I want to thank you very much for your time today. Can't come soon enough. I want my life back. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good day. Thank you, sir. All right. Take care. Bye. This has been another episode of Hubwonk a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support us. You can give us a five-star rating or offer a review. If you want a new episode automatically downloaded to your podcaster, you can subscribe to the show. If you have comments or suggestions or ideas for future episodes, you're welcome to reach out to me via email. My email address is hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.